Welcome to the Scale Up Valley podcast, where we bring the best of the best to help you scale your business from 1 million to 1 trillion. Today's guest is a very special one. His name is Jen Gomez, CEO of Outside. Jen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mike. It's a real pleasure to be here. My pleasure. And uh, I'm sure that the community will really enjoy to get to learn from you. Uh, your experience is, is pretty amazing. Uh, and I would like also you to share uh, a bit more of your podcast during your uh, introduction, because that's the way I connected with you. Oh, and right. I'm, I'm an avid <laughs> listener of, uh, of your podcast and of your uh, guests. So, but let's, let's get to present you in a, in a better way. So who is Jen Gomez? Well, thanks, Mike. Um, so a little quick tour, uh, my background. I trained as a scientist first in neuroscience and neurochemistry and then in psychology, combined those kind of two things together into a career that is is really in two halves. The first 25 years I was working with CEOs um, and their teams on large transformation and growth efforts. Um, and in the last 10 years, I suppose I, I really confronted something that I saw a lot of and, and unfortunately was probably participating in something which is, uh, you know, has come to known as uh, innovation theatre, where people are being trained, are running programs around innovation, and they get no growth out of them at all. So, you know, a lot of, uh, of activities that are very expensive, time consuming, um, and don't really don't really change anything. And um, so what what I and a, a longstanding friend and colleague, Anami Rest, did um, was to form a joint venture called Growth Factory, which is to lean really deeply into what that problem was. Um, and we decoded it, and then we started saying, right, we're going to put our money where our mouth is, and we're going to make a, a proposition around generating 10x growth in large traditional organizations that are struggling with that issue. Um, and we, we've done that in a, a number of, um, of of areas, including financial services, but we've become passionate about helping um, traditional hardware engineering organizations. And Peter Thiel, a few years ago, memorably said that you know they had suffered since the 1970s something called the Great Stagnation, software engineering, you know, cantering off into the future, you know, eating the world, whereas what had transformed the world in the past, um, and you have to look around us to know that's true, has really fallen well behind. And so we're really interested in helping it to leapfrog because we think the intersection between those two worlds is where the future lies. Love it. And, uh, and your your company outside, of course, uh, you, you like also to uh, give a shout out. Yeah, sure. So so outside, um, our, uh, we, we have this kind of rather ambitious purpose, which is to be a driving force of human evolution. And, and that might sound highfalutin words. And, and, and even I, as the creator of those words, and you know, my team is always holding me accountable to this, um, purpose has to stretch you, it has to frighten you, it has to be something that drives you forward. And, and so where we got to a few years ago was we, we recognized that the foundation on which everything that we were doing that was transformative all started with not the playbooks. There's an abundance of playbooks out there. It was mindset. And so we spent a lot of time really understanding the science of mindset because it's a word that's thrown around a lot but not really understood. We worked with some of the world's greatest neuroscientists and performance psychologists um, to really understand how to think differently about this challenge of solving the most difficult 
problems facing an organization and its customer base and get to the root of what it takes to, you know, to be a, a really transformative force. And so outside was our, our kind of way of pulling all of that together and, um, and creating a, a value proposition that is around helping leaders solve their greatest problems, but at a really profound level. And when, if we can't do that, then you know, we're not living our, our purpose. So we're, we're, we've set ourselves a pretty high bar deliberately so that's amazing and i really enjoyed uh, your rebranding uh, to outside congrats on that uh, thank really you enjoyed the, the new brand and as i said before uh, i also love your uh, podcast the evolving uh, leader podcast so i would like also to share a bit more uh, for yeah. those who would like to listen because anyone that loves to listen to the Scale Up Valley podcast, I think we, we would love to give it a chance as well. Well, it, yeah, so the, the Evolving Leader is a podcast that I'm doing in collaboration with a longstanding friend and partner, um, Scott Allender, who heads up um, leadership at uh, Warner Music Group globally. And he and I are constantly talking about what we think the, the most profound leadership challenges are facing the world. and. You know, we, we think because we're going through this great transition, technology, social upheaval and so on, that there just literally is not enough leadership in the world right now. You know, in, in organizations, there's, there's been a, um, I think, a, a transition that's been taking place where people are getting technically proficient at leadership, um, like, a, like a technical skill. Um, but what that's leading to is an absence of perhaps moral leadership, um, leadership that is actually giving the world what it needs. And, and leaders are taking a deep responsibility for some of those challenges. And you, you can see them everywhere from climate change, uh, ocean pollution, um, education, food supply, and so on. Every leader in the world has some responsibility for playing a part in solving those things. And so uh, we, we are bringing together, and we're at the early stages of this, we're less than six months into the podcast, but we've got some brilliant guests who are, you know, diverse, uh, you know, people who are already trying to solve some of those problems, people, we've got the CEO of Pfizer talking about, you know, some of the things they did there to accelerate and come first to market with, a, with the COVID vaccine. We've got, um, you know, a couple of neuroscientists that are amongst the most you know, 1% of most cited scientists in the world talking about how to rethink how we we see the world and so on. So we, we're trying to bring together people who are provoking us into thinking more about what's going on uh, and thinking about that leadership should be an exciting challenge. It's not just this, you know, heap of responsibility, but it's also, it's like, you can, it's the place to do your greatest work, to grow, to look back at your life and have no regrets and think, yeah, you know, I did something really meaningful rather than, you know, I got status, I got lots of money and, uh, you know, I got a, um, a cool job title. I think, I think most people are beyond that anyway, but, you know, being a leader is, uh, is a huge, huge responsibility. And I think we, we need to, to think about, you know, what it looks like in the future, if we're going to have a, uh, a good world ahead of us. That's awesome. So I'm sure that everyone is super excited to get to know more about our conversation on the three critical ingredients to, to scale that we always discuss on, on the show. Number one, radical focus. Number two, world-class leadership slash team slash culture. 
uh, and number three, a culture of um, execution. Typically, we discuss two kinds of scale, uh, the VC packets scale-ups, the ones who scale from 1 million to 100 million and post IPO from 100 million to 1B and the corporate scale-ups from 1B to uh, one tree. Given your experience with working with uh, large companies, it's it's much more the the, um, the scale from one B to one tree. Just to give context to to the community that is uh, tuning in uh, with us today, and uh, and let's start with uh, radical focus. And this one is very counterintuitive, and it's also related with leadership, which is about having the courage to to say no uh, when there are so many opportunities. Um, outside and at the same time to say yes and double down on what is working and where lies a strong opportunity and doubling down on that opportunity for a decade or two decades which is having also a long term in combination to with with a short term mindset to get to that uh, long term this is very counterintuitive so usually when we are getting more people uh, in the team, more resources. It seems that in order to keep scaling, we need to keep opening new niches and new markets and go for a very large market. Um, but what we see in practice is that one of the main bottlenecks of scaling up is the complexity. So we need to be able to simplify. And as Leonardo da Vinci said, simplicity is the ultimate sophistication, right? Mm. So what have been some of your lessons uh, working with um, with corporate scale-up leaders um, where radical focus has been important or any lessons, any any concepts that you'd like to share with, with us? Yeah, well, I, I have a, something which I think, you know, is a, is a good starting point for this from, from the sense of focus. Um, I, I think, you know, when you're trying to change something, you have to get to, um, first principle thinking and it, it's it's so easy to have an argument at the symptomatic level um, and trade blows around you know this is true this is happening i don't buy that you know show prove to me all this kind of stuff so you know, like we have to get down to you know what is actually happening at the most profound level and what is happening for most large organizations is something that everybody knows but it's not really talking about which is they've become defensive and what that means is that not just at a you know a uh, at a at a kind of interpersonal level. I don't mean that. I mean they have literally built a worldview um, that is around preserving, conserving value at the expense of growth. And what that looks like is that over a period of time, you know, you, you become successful, and the longer you're being successful, the more this becomes maybe your issue. Is that your entire uh, mindset and worldview is set around what you have done in the past? So you, you are literally building a defensive organization that extrapolates future, the future from the past. It assume, makes a whole bunch of uh, fundamental assumptions about you know, what tomorrow looks like. And anything, you know, to your point about counterintuitive, anything that isn't intuitive, in other words, isn't in that worldview, which is this is our market, this is our customer, this is how we create value, this is our business model, these are the kind of people we work for, these are the things that we don't do, starts to become you know, well, why we, we, you know, the things we wouldn't do. And that operates at such a profound level that what you know, defensiveness at its, at, its, at its core is making arguments against your own self-interest. <laughs> so you end up arguing yourself out of growth, arguing yourself out of risk, um, because you literally can't see it. So come to your question about radical focus. Every leader 
and every organization is responsible for three dimensions of focus. The first is to deliver short-term performance. You have to, that's your lifeblood, that's what keeps you uh, moving. And if you're a successful organization or an established organization, that represents you know, a huge you know, um, machinery of, uh, of sales, product development, and so on. We all know that. But you also have a responsibility for uh, creating value for the future. That's your second degree of focus or second uh, aspect of focus. And the third is to align people and value. Now, if you look, as I have done with my team, at literally hundreds of leadership teams and talking to them about the calibration between those three dimensions, you would say that there was a maniacal focus on value today, a, um, uh, a focus on aligning people and value around today, and then a tiny little bubble. If you, these were visualized as three little kind of intersecting bubbles, a tiny bubble on value tomorrow, often described, um, you know, kind of dismissively as the quarterly offsite, talking about things that we never do. So when you bring that together as a, as a, as a picture about uh, radical focus, you're radically focused on the past. You're defending the, the past. And you can see this by closed questions. Uh, all the indicators of performance are lagging. You know, the leading ones aren't really <laughs> leading at all. They're just lagging ones dressed up as leading ones. Um, and, and the focus of leaders is on value today. So in, in terms of what that does to culture, what it does to mindset is it says to the organization, despite what you might say in terms of either acquisitions, in terms of innovation efforts, they're not safe. They're risky. Um, because what the leaders are doing is they're focusing all of their efforts. And we, use, we kind, of, kind of call it 95-5. 95% of their focus is on today, 5% on the future. Um, you know, no matter what you say to the organization, what you're telling them through your focus is don't focus there, focus here. So I think that what that does ultimately is it creates something called a past-present organization. Organizations whose past is shaping its present all the time and, and ultimately its future. The, the shift that we're trying to create in organizations is to recalibrate those three bubbles of, of focus. So it's closer to 70-30. To, to 70% is, is, is defending the core, is, you know, maybe is even innovating and making it cheaper, faster, better. But 30% is on creating value for tomorrow. And that might not sound as a huge shift. It represents a seismic shift. Just think about your, your, you know, your calendar and freeing up 30% of your time in your calendar to focus on value tomorrow. Most leaders would, would be absolutely horrified, but we help them to do that. So I think you know, in terms of the shift to um, uh, a future now organization, one that's capable of doing you know, something that's quite difficult, which is to hold two opposing uh, you know, challenges, which is short and long-term objectives, which people do find quite difficult to <laughs> To, to hold together, but that that is the ultimate you know mindset skill set challenge facing facing leaders, and I think there are there are kind of three areas that sit beneath that in terms of you know how do you build this this future now type of organization. One is very familiar to listeners, I'm sure, which is about product market fit. Is your organization really solving problems that customers care about that are worth solving? And past present organizations generally aren't. What they're doing is they are pushing either you know, existing products laden with assumptions about what customers value, and they're using sales and marketing to reduce market resistance to adoption. That's a really inefficient model. 
it creates even you know, <laughs> it, it reinforces defensiveness because Salesforce complain about the fact that they can't sell stuff, people don't want it. Um, you know, senior management go, you're not doing a good enough job. You know, I mean, that's just basically a resentment cycle that you're building into the organization. That's the first one, really. Are you solving for the stuff? The second is, you know, is, is building a mindset of 70% is good enough. Everything around experimentation, speed, and so on needs to um, start moving out perfection. Because when you're in a very risky environment where you're defending stuff, you try and de-risk everything. But you're de-risking the wrong things. You're de-risking uh, execution. You're de-risking hiring. Don't hire people that don't fit in, et cetera, et cetera. Instead of, let's, you need to make calculated risks. Um, and one of those is to go faster, um, you know, because you're not going to learn quickly unless you make mistakes quickly and make them small and, and so on. Uh, and 70% good enough is counterintuitive, particularly into the engineering mind. It's counterintuitive for most corporates, but you know, that, that's, a, that's the next one. And then the final one is you're going to keep on, if you do this, um, discovering new horizons of stuff that you don't know. And the only way in which you can deal with that is to adopt a nonlinear mindset. In other words, you have to be able to do lots of things in parallel, not sequentially, because otherwise you're just going to become overwhelmed. And that's the way to break down complexity. Um, it's very counterintuitive, but that's the way you do it because it, you can't see the big picture if you're only doing things sequentially. You see bits of it, it overwhelms you. You go, I just can't cope with this. But if you're getting you know, multiple things happening at the same time in a very coordinated fashion, that nonlinear problem solving allows you to see more of what's happening quicker. And I'm going to pause there because that's a, uh, that's a lot of me talking <laughs> I love it, and uh, it's kind of also moving from from a command and control uh, kind of organization to a much more team of teams uh, organization. That's where there is much more flexibility, uh, decentralized decision making, and uh, everyone understands the purpose, the mission, the vision, direction. What are we trying to achieve? The why of the organization, the soul of the organization. We are all passionate about it, and in our own selves we are all moving into the same direction with much more agility and flexibility to, uh, because this, the, the, those cells are closer to the customer and are able to understand what is the, the best uh, thing to do to the customer. And they are able to have autonomy, the autonomous uh, power to be able to add value to, to the customer. Something that I really enjoyed also, it's kind of the split between 70% uh, of looking just to your, to your agenda and seeing if you have 70% uh, focused on the present and 30% in the future. And maybe we can do the same exercise with those cells of uh, the team. So how many of those people are mainly focused on the present or in the future, and we will maybe be surprised. And that's a good intro to the second uh, key ingredient uh, for scaling up. So world-class leadership slash team um, slash culture. So we, we talk here, it is really, really important to have the right people on the right seats for each stage of growth. So in the case of corporates going from one to five B or from five B to 10 B, 10 to 20 B, uh, different divisions, different business units, uh, it's, it is different, the kind of um, teams that we need in, in each stage of growth of those uh, different cells of in, inside the large corporate. So what, what are some of your lessons learned there and what would you like to share based on your experience, Jen? Yeah, well, I mean, large corporates are full of amazing people, high quality, well-educated, often, you know, wonderful human beings um, 
who are in a system that, particularly when the world is moving faster than their world, are feeling <laughs> not in a great place. And so that creates anxiety and fear and it creates um, blind spots and, and, and so on. And I think one of the things that, that we're seeing is that a lot of that, you know, because they are great people, a lot of those people can change. Uh, and, you know, why, why we talk about mindset is because we talk about culture and transformation, the efforts and so on. Those, those tend to be things that seem to fill the CEO and, and the C-suite with dread because they know that it takes a very long time. It's, you know, but you can change your mindset very quickly. And we've seen repeatedly when a mindset changes, then, you know, things change, problem solving, you know, determination and so on. So I think, you know, again, coming back to, you know, what, what does world-class leadership, you can't change an organization unless the leaders change their focus and they change their mindset. Um, and so, you know, when, when we think about what that looks like in practical terms, where are they placing their attention and what problems are they solving? And, are they moving quick enough to solve those things? Are they making the the decisions that are the counterintuitive, difficult ones? Are they facing into that, um, you know, you know, as as uh, wholeheartedly, or are they are they pushing it down the organization? You know, confusing delegation and empowerment and so on, um, giving it to other people. And when they get when the answers come back up, they don't like them because they're challenging their sense of you know focus and so on so i think you know it's like what do they need to own um and they need to be in it they need to be in it definitely um i think the other truth is that most organizations don't have enough creative problem solving because creativity is not required in most corporates you know we we do a mindset survey of large corporates and we ask them one question out of these 50 questions we ask is you know how important is creativity in your job and in, in quite a lot of corporates, less than 5% people say it's my job to be creative. Now, <laughs> that matches with the CEO, you know, that big survey they done a few years ago by IMM asked a thousand CEOs, what's the number one, you know, you know thing you want? And it was creativity. <laughs> so there's a huge gap between what people are paid to do in organizations, which is manage process, defend the status quo, keep things from, uh, you know, from slipping into chaos um, versus you know, imagination. And, and I think, you know, increasingly what, what organizations need to do is to industrialize imagination. It's not that, you know, you're, you're, you're creating an art shop or anything like that. What you're trying to do is to reimagine the world based on what's happening, you know, to this rapid change in, in, in technology, in business model innovation that's taking place all around us, be able to see what's going on. And you can't do that if, your lens is non-creative. In other words, it's not really seeing what's going on. That's what creativity actually is. It's the ability to see what's going on, see problems that need to be solved, and then uh, allowing yourself permission to uh, enable your unconscious thought processes to generate options for you. And, you know, people don't get paid to do that in most large corporates. Or a very tiny percentage of people have it in their job title, everybody else. So I think we need, we need, we need that. We need uh, to recognize that Entrepreneurialism is a dirty word in most organizations. Constructive troublemakers are, are, are rooted out um, out of the organization. Um, you know, compliance is more important than, than difference. And I think, uh, you know, entrepreneurial leadership means taking deep, really deep accountability for managing risk. Um, and 
again, that's not something that you see in many corporates. You don't see many people. So I think what you have to do there is find the people that can do it, particularly those are the younger end. Fast track them through the organization because they haven't necessarily learned, learned all the bad habits or, or become ensconced in that. And then, uh, you know, think creatively about working with with people um, you know, in, in an ecosystem sense, you know, bring them in, come and do tours of duty in your organization so that you build the muscle about what does an entrepreneur look like? What do they actually do? How do they go 10 times faster than traditional you know, growth initiatives in your company? How do they think about product market fit and, and, and watch it close up, get, get you know, front row seats at least, um, you know, and bring startups in to come and work alongside you as well. Get that entrepreneurial mindset embedded into your organization any way which you can, because not all your people can 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 perform that you know that uh, uh, that shift in their thinking. I, I love it, sense kind of summarizing. So it's it's really important that using your words, Jen, uh, to be able to imagine the future, but keeping radical focus on what is the big opportunity on on your purpose, your mission, your your vision. Uh, of course, having an amazing team uh, in a kind of team to team of teams uh, environment, so they are able to be autonomous and have decentralized decision making to increase speed and increase execution. But at the same time, it's really important not to have bureaucracy, but to have uh, an operating system that is adapted to the stage of growth. What I like to call the rituals, and uh, that's what we call in this fourth ingredient, the culture of execution uh, in the show. And when I'm talking about the rituals, it's all about communication, the importance of doing weeklies, monthlies, quarterlies, annuals, all ends. And this is not about micromanaging. This is about assuring that everyone is on the same page and assuring that as soon as, uh, as possible, we are able to detect miscommunication gaps of execution uh, to learn as quickly as possible that maybe we're not moving into the right direction. There are problems that we need to solve together. And I think this is kind of the mindset also to run those rhythms and, and that this operating system is we are not here to blame each other. We are here to see if we are on the same page to detect any bottlenecks or roadblocks to get to the future that we have imagined and to solve those bottlenecks together. So yeah. what we want to do is to solve them, not to blame who is the uh, the person who is failing at, uh, at their job. So what are some of your uh, lessons or experiences uh, with, with the culture of execution bit? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I have been in in this game for a long time, um, and I I've lost count of the number of uh, one company initiatives, one Sony, one Shell, one GE, one. You know, so everybody <laughs> comes up against this, you know, this challenge of when you're in a large corporate organization, you realize the greatest limitation to to driving these kind of initiatives are are, are silo focus, turf wars, and and so on, and you know, you you need. Uh, you, you need structures and you need things to help people organize and, and make sense of their identity and so on. But they become the greatest limitation if they become the only identities. So if you look at organizations like Spotify and others that have kind of tackled this, they have mul people have multiple identities. And it's not just a matrix organization. So tribes and chapters and squads and so on are really about trying to help you to be mentally flexible in terms of your identity. So you can turn up to do exactly what you describe what are we solving for? We, are we solving at a product level? Are we solving at a customer level? Are we solving at an organizational level? And we're all in it together. We're winning together. 
And I think one of the things that I've learned about this is if the leaders aren't in that, if they're kind of pushing the problem down the organization, what ends up happening is it just comes back up at them again. They need to be in it. Uh, and there was a long, you know, a, a, a really powerful lesson for me. I was working in Sony, um, and this is, this is probably 15 or 20 years ago, I can't remember. And they had been trying to implement um, SAP into the organization and it had failed on numerous occasions. And this guy came in and one of the most softly spoken leaders in the organization, and he, he did it. And he did it in, in months. You know, it wasn't years. It was like six or eight months or something like that. And he managed to, to implement this really complex software with lots of different software st stakeholders and, and, and make a profit out of the whole thing very, very quickly. And you talk about rituals. His ritual was um, every Friday or Thursday morning, I, I think it might be Thursday morning, he'd have everybody on the team and he would do a little kind of rag rating, red, green, amber, you know, conversation. If it was green, no problem. Don't talk about it. If it's amber, what are you doing about it? If it was red, you know, what's the action? You know, how are you going to turn it to, to amber or green next week? And what typically happened in these kind of big projects was that this person who was, you know, uh, it was an MD, but he sat on the board of the organization, would come for the first inaugural meeting and then you'd never see them again until the whole thing, you know, crashed and burned. You know, or they wouldn't even come then because then <laughs> be somebody else's fault. Um, but he was there every week. And what he was telling everybody was, this is important. It's not going away. Um, and I'm here to help you. And that's, that was the tipping point. That's what changed this thing. Everybody was like, oh, well, you know, you know nobody didn't turn up. Everybody was there and, and everybody wanted their project to be green. Uh, and I, I think, you know, you can't underestimate the power of leaders demonstrating that something's important to them, not by what they say or when they get cross, when it's not happening, but the fact that they're involved. Love it. Um, and we, we have covered the three critical ingredients to, um, to scale, uh, but is there something from your experience that we should have covered as well or that should have asked you that I didn't ask so far? Well, I have a particular interest at the moment in something called the knowing doing gap, <laughs> because I think, you know, there's, there's um, you know, uh, particularly with bright people, we, uh, I hope I put myself in them, <laughs> but when I say we, um, the knowing doing gap is, uh, is the difference between, you know, and it's obvious, knowing something, intellectually understanding it, and then doing something about it. And there's a number of ways in which you can think about this. One is that, that, that there's an intelligence trap. Um, and the intelligence trap in psychology has been probed in lots of different experiments where, where people can confuse knowing something with doing something about it. So the, the, the act of talking about something they know or thinking about something they know is conflated or you know, imagined as I'm doing something about it. And why that might be is because they're using cognitive processes to, 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 to think that through or to apply it, you know, so to talk about it. And that requires effort, and the brain is always trying to conserve effort. So instead of using that effort to think about it, do it. <laughs> You're not doing it. So one is at the expense of the other. And there's some really fascinating studies that show the more intelligent you are, the more likely you are to confuse knowing and doing. Now, where that sits is a number of levels. At a leadership and personal self-management level, you can know something for your entire life intellectually and never do it. I know that. I know that. I know that. 
And so you, 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 you see, and this is what I think was at the root of the innovation theater problem in organizations, is that organizations were trying to amass the perfect playbook. How does it get done? How do, anyway, how, what's these tools and so on? Instead of having the imperfect playbook, which might be 20 pages long, and just doing something and building their own by action. You know, focus on doing something, test and learn. And, and I think the same thing applies for getting fit, eating healthily, sleeping well, having good relationships. If you're thinking about it and not doing it, you're never going to learn anything. Um, and, and so, so there's, there's one part of that. And then and the other part of it is, is like breaking down why you're not doing, why you're not closing that doing, doing gap. And we started to think about what we observe in people. Now, there's obviously an intellectualizing thing. Um, but there's also an emotional part of it, which is how do people feel about the gap? So are they in denial about it? Are they avoiding it? Or are they, uh, are they moving into a kind of um, transactional relationship with it? And we started to look at how individuals and teams then normalize or socialize the, the knowing doing gap. So it becomes part of their you know, like way of justifying the world. And you know, one of the most obvious ways in which you can see people doing this in team setting is they would go into a meeting, talk about a really important challenge, and they'd spend the whole time talking about what the problem is, get quite upset about the problem that it's not being solved, um, and then walk away with no commitment to action and, and do the same thing, repeat, rinse and repeat, you know, like dozens of times. We call it just discuss and describe rather than decide and do. That's the knowing doing gap. And, you know, some studies would say up to 60% of your organization is doing that every day. That's that's a very important one, and uh, that's why we see and getting back to the kind of the culture of execution bit. Why I see there is some kind of resistance to implement the weeklies. So um, leaders don't want to see the same problems every single week, and and, and maybe they don't want to address those problems and uh, make the tough decisions that needs to be addressed on those weeklies. So it's better to just jump <laughs> those uh, weeklies. I think it, it's all also related uh, with you, what you just uh, described. It. Amazing. So we get to the final question and my favorite uh, one, which is if you'd have the opportunity to meet yourself, Jen, at the beginning of your career what advice would you offer to your younger chat well it's a really difficult one and i've got a very long list so i'm going to pick one um i i think you know um i think you have to be really clear on what you want in life um and uh i think my younger self probably thought I knew that, but had I really asked that question or was I really defined, was that expectation defined by the people around me, the experiences I had around me? Did I expose myself to enough, uh, uh, you know, different environments, perspectives? I did a lot of traveling when I was young and so on, but did I, did I ask myself the question, what do I want in the basis of, you know, who I am as an individual uh, rather than what I thought I should be? Um, now I'm very, I, I'm, I am deeply happy. I'm ha happy as a, you know, as a as a husband, as a father, as a as a friend, and as a you know as a worker, so I I have found a very happy place in my life. So I've got no regrets around that. But you know, if I'd asked that question, would I have been on a different path? I think so, and I think I might have got there more quickly. Um, and I, I don't think many people ask themselves the question, "Who am I, and what do I really want?" 
John, I really appreciate uh, your honesty and transparency and your experience. Uh, thanks so much for, for being with us today. Oh, thank you, Mike. Anytime. And to our community, uh, we had today Jen Gomez, uh, CEO of Outside. And we keep bringing you the best of the best to keep helping you to scale your business from 1 million to 1 trillion. Keep scaling and see you soon.